So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Like so many Canadians, Warren Forsyth and Terry Shendrick started their day at Tim Hortons. It was a typically brisk May morning in the Lower Mainland, especially on Burnaby Mountain, which tends to be a few degrees cooler than nearby Vancouver. Warren and Terry got to the coffee shop at around 6.15am, and they hung around for just over an hour going over their plans for the day. They were headed to the long-standing protest camp that was challenging Kinder Morgan's planned expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Burnaby Mountain had become ground zero for Canada's pipeline debate, and politicians like Green Party leader Elizabeth May and soon-to-be mayor of Vancouver Kennedy Stewart got themselves arrested there to demonstrate their opposition to the project. The Green Party leader, Elizabeth May, being arrested. She's being led away by two Mounties. The protests at Burnaby Mountain had turned into a kind of ritual. Protesters will walk through the rainforest to the Kinder Morgan tank farm, drumming and singing songs. We will walk with you. Walk with you. We And they get to the gates and raise a banner with the words, Stop Kinder Morgan, emblazoned on it. And then they'd wait, sometimes for hours. But inevitably, Kinder Morgan would call the RCMP to tell them that the court injunction was being violated. The cops would arrive, hand out physical copies of said injunction, and then read it out loud, which would take about 10 minutes, and anyone who remained would be arrested. The whole affair was pretty organized. 
When Ward and Terry got to the protest site, they chatted with a woman wearing a fluorescent vest who told them the rules. If they planned on getting arrested, no weapons, no drugs or booze, and no cell phones, unless it's locked with a password. And the two of them walked around the camp, talking to the protesters. After one woman had the injunction read to her by the cops, Warren asked her if she was nervous. She said she was at first, but she wanted to do her part to save the animals and the environment. That day's protest went off like so many others. People chanted, sang, put up the banner, were read the injunction, and were arrested. But there was one thing that was different. Warren and Terry, they weren't who they said they were. They didn't come to Burnaby Mountain out of their concern for pipelines or climate change. They were on the job. Warren and Terry were spies. In the past few years, Canada has seen a surge of environmental and indigenous activism. Pipeline projects and plans to frack oil and gas have all been vigorously opposed by many everyday people. But all of those actions have sparked a reaction. Protesters are increasingly under surveillance. Warren and Terry, they were private detectives working for Kinder Morgan to gather intel on activists. Private companies, the police, and even Canada's intelligence agencies are all being called out for gathering information and spying on peaceful protesters and treating them like criminals. And there's a real worry amongst activists that the tools of the state are being used against normal people in favor of private companies. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. It took Ron Tremblay a few days to notice that something might be up. This van, this white van, this un- unmarked white van, a guy looked like he was a painter or, or a construction guy. He'd be reading a paper, you know, and just sitting there reading. And then, um, you know, I didn't really pay too much attention to him until after the third morning. He didn't work around here. My name is Willis Degui, Grand Chief Ron Trombley, known as Bazakazit Pisazim. Even before he was Grand Chief, Trombley had been joining various protests against resource development in New Brunswick for years. And when he noticed the van, he wasn't quite sure what was going on. And then I would call home once I got to work. And then asked my partner, Joan, I said, is that Van still there? He said, no, he left just a minute after you would leave. Like, this was consistent for approximately two weeks. He must have got bored because I just went to work and I came home. So I wasn't, you know, (laughs) doing much. You know, I was doing uh, contract work at the time for uh, indigenous business. So I was probably pretty boring for him. Sometimes the police would be less subtle. Sometimes they just call, like last week. The Wollastook First Nation was planning to hold an emergency meeting about their opposition to a nearby tungsten mine on their territory. And shortly after he posted about the meeting, Ron got a call. It was a private number, so I picked up the phone and I recognized her voice right off the bat because she she called me a year ago. It was RCMP Constable Joanna Spachuk. Ironically, she called me that morning after me posting that meeting for last night. She said, well, how are the grandmothers doing and all this? And, and I was very short and limited with my responses. You know, I, I didn't give her any lengthy response. So she knew that our meeting was going to go on. I think it's letting me know that they, that they know what we're doing. Tremblay first met Spachik about two and a half years ago. 
He'd been attending a meeting at the Crown Plaza in Fredericton. They were supposed to respond and make statements of their concern about the proposed tungsten mine that Northcliffe industry was proposing. And I was walking out of the meeting. I was on my way for lunch. And that's when she approached me. And, and she knew my name. He agreed to meet with her for coffee. She told him that her main concern was avoiding the type of violence that took place during the anti-fracking protests in New Brunswick in 2013. But Ron isn't very sympathetic to that argument. He says that uniformed RCMP often follow him after he's left a protest. It wasn't long after that first meeting that Ron started seeing that white van following him. And Ron has good reason to be worried. Back in 2015, the RCMP labeled the anti-petroleum movement a growing and violent threat to Canada's security. While acts of sabotage do occasionally happen, and go listen to our episode on Weibo Ludwig if you haven't already, there have been no deaths at the hands of the so-called anti-petroleum movement in Canada. And indigenous activists have specifically been targeted by the RCMP. They even had a name for it, Project Sitka. According to an internal RCMP report, the force tracked 313 activists, and 89 of them were, quote, found to meet the criteria for criminality associated to public order events. The police created in-depth profiles of each of them. They tracked public influencers on social media. The report listed various groups linked with these so-called criminally associated protesters. They included various protest camps, broad movements like Idle No More, the American Indian Movement, and activist groups like the Council for Canadians. They were especially focused on New Brunswick, where they had identified 35 people of note. Ron, who has been arrested for engaging in protests, doesn't know if he's on this kind of list, but he worries about the effect that this kind of surveillance could have on young activists in his community. Once you get your name and face out in there in public, especially if there's going to be unknown faces around with within gatherings and and rallies and so on, you know, I'm I'm going to tell them you never go off by yourself somewhere because they can be uh, a target of harassment and even though I hope hope not it doesn't come to this but violence. It's not just activists that have been targeted. Journalists and whistleblowers also have reason to worry. It's not just one person that has made mistakes here, there's definitely a pattern of behavior that is disturbing. I'm Mike D'Souza, managing editor from National Observer and longtime reporter who has focused a great deal of my career on energy and environment. His first encounter with private eyes began when he was covering the National Energy Board, the federal regulator that oversees things like pipeline projects. After an NEB hearing was shut down by protesters in 2016, D'Souza got a tip from a source inside the regulator. One of the highest-ranking public servants within the NEB had joked about tasering protesters. After D'Souza reported the story, he got another tip. The NEB had hired a private investigator to track down his source. And he was hired, ironically enough, by the NEB's vice president of transparency. These things are not the best way to encourage or let the public know that they can trust 
the government or that they can have confidence in the government's capacity to oversee industry, monitor and, and, and to be a watchdog that holds industry to account and that regulates it in an adequate way. D'Souza had been one of the most dogged journalists covering the NEB, and his reporting on secret meetings between lobbyists and regulators undermined public support in the Energy East pipeline. And now he had to worry if he himself was being personally surveilled because of his reporting. So to find out, he actually went down to the private investigator's office for a very awkward visit. And then I just said, OK, let's just go inside and, and, and see who's there. So we went in inside the building. We knocked on the door. We talked to one of the one of the private eyes who was there. It wasn't the one who was assigned to investigate the whistleblowers at the NEB. It was another one. And, you know, it was just a pleasant and cordial chat. Later that same day, D'Souza was told that he wasn't being personally followed, but the experience has had an effect on how he reports. I've learned to take precautions. I wash my back and I take care in, in how I communicate with whistleblowers. I'm not using regular phones. Um, I don't want to give away all secrets, but, but I do a variety of different things to protect the identity of sources. And the relationship between the regulator, the energy companies, and professional snoops goes even deeper. After that contentious hearing in Montreal, the National Energy Board hired Welland, a private intelligence contractor. The company was founded by a former MI6 agent and has become one of the go-to firms for energy companies and governments that want to keep a tab on activists. This was through a service, uh, like a media monitoring intelligence service, where they're analyzing media posts, including social media, and analyzing patterns and identifying potential threats. According to Mother Jones magazine, Lee Williams, the head of security at the NEB, spoke highly of Welland and even recommended the company to other arms of the government. A short time later, Lee Williams would leave his job at the NEB and go to work for Welland itself. After D'Souza started asking questions about the contract between the NEB and Welland, he was told that it had been cancelled at the end of 2017. And then they started telling me, you know, we've cancelled this contract. It, this is happening over a period of weeks or perhaps even months that at one point they say, okay, this contract has been discontinued. We have a new contract with a firm called Falling Apple. Falling Apple is a company founded by Epo Van Wilderen, a former high-ranking Canadian military man. And as it turns out, Falling Apple has the exact same address as Welland. And Van Wilderen? Well, he's also on Welland's board of directors. So again, there, there is a bit of an incestuous circle between government regulator industry here. They have a cozy relationship, I think you could say, uh, or intimate relationship in, in, in how they meet and in how they interact and how they do business. D'Souza thinks all of this surveillance, whether it's at the NEB or at the protest camp out in Burnaby, is having an impact on legitimate protest. One of them told us they thought it was it was creepy how they were being described in, in these notes. And it could have had a chilling effect and make people kind of think twice when you're going to this, what you think is a public protest and you're expressing your opinions and your rights. You would like to think that you are surrounded by others who are concerned citizens as well. And, and you don't want to think that you're, you're standing next to a spy. 
The other thing I think that these private investigators, they advertise that they've done this sort of thing before. So it's not like an isolated incident. This is something that companies do all the time. And there are specialists who, I guess, engage in these these types of undercover practices. And it should be a warning for, for anyone who is participating in a, in a public meeting about Canada's energy sector to know that, yeah, you, you might be under surveillance. The energy companies and the regulator are hiring private detectives. The police are keeping tabs on Idle No More and calling anti-petroleum activists a violent threat. But for years, the big question for a lot of activists has been whether or not Canada's intelligence agencies have also gotten in on the game. And now, we have some solid evidence that they have. Earlier this month, the BC Civil Liberties Association released thousands of pages of documents that they dubbed the protest papers. The documents are now online in a searchable database called the protest papers. It was the culmination of a five-year legal battle with CSIS, Canada's spy agency. CSIS initially wanted even the federal court hearings to all be secret, everything under gag order, everything sealed. My name is Megan McDermott. I'm staff counsel in the policy department of the BC Civil Liberties Association. We now know that CSIS had created over 500 investigative reports related to opponents of the Northern Gateway Pipeline. The papers include a report done by the Security Intelligence Review Committee, the oversight body that deals with Canada's spies, and it was looking into whether CSIS was improperly spying on opponents of the Northern Gateway Pipeline. The review was done in utmost secrecy. Even activists who testified to the committee can never speak about what they said. Unless this gag order is lifted, and we're trying to have it lifted, then until their dying days, if any of these people uh, were to disclose what they said on the stand, what questions were asked of them, or what they heard other people talk about, that they could be held in contempt of court. The report shows that CSIS accepted information from energy companies on activists. But we should emphasize that CERC didn't find that CSIS did anything illegal. But there's still cause for concern. For one, energy companies are given security briefings by CSIS twice a year. And we don't really know what kinds of things are discussed at those very secret meetings. And the fact that CSIS was open to accepting information about protesters from these energy companies should make people a little bit uncomfortable. As we've already seen, those companies aren't above hiring private investigators who don't have to get warrants to collect information. You know, you can follow them around and stalk them and videotape them in ways that the police can't, or the the police can, but only in very narrow circumstances. That's a huge way to get information without going through the legal requirements and getting a third party to okay it. And these companies have a lot of money that they could invest in these kind of investigators that they hire and then pass this information because they know that they have these ongoing meetings. Progressive NGOs like Lead Now, the Dogwood Initiative, and the Council of Canadians appear in the papers, sometimes multiple times. I know a lot of people, I'm sure your listeners do, they're even concerned about signing a petition in some cases because they're afraid that then they're going to get on some list and that might inhibit their activities in the future. It's really important that we understand exactly like that people that are just opposed to a pipeline project, that they're not ending up on some kind of list and being spoken about at these meetings. 
there have been numerous instances of people being put on no-fly lists, denied entry into other countries, or being turned down for jobs because they ended up flagged by a police or spy agency. And while the review didn't find CSIS did anything wrong, the documents are heavily, and I mean heavily, redacted. Here are some examples. Quote, The evidence presented to me in the ex parte hearings has convinced me that any collection and dissemination of information by CSIS was done lawfully and in accordance with its mandate. I am persuaded that there was no targeting of... Also testified that... He clarified that the service... But through the course of our investigations, incidentally, some reporting on... Might come up because... You get the picture. The fact that there's over 8,000 pages that make up the evidence was surprising. Even though these protest papers didn't include a smoking gun, we've learned before about how close Canada's intelligence agencies are to the energy industry. Back in 2013, the NSA documents leaked by Edward Snowden showed that Canada had been conducting economic espionage of Brazilian mining and energy officials. It was called the Olympia Program. International espionage, secret meetings, and shared intelligence aimed at offering private companies a competitive advantage. It sounds like the plot of a spy thriller, but it may in fact be the work of the Canadian government. All connected to those allegations Canada spied on Brazil. Not only were the revelations a shock to Brazil, but they demonstrate just how closely Canadian spies are willing to work to serve the interests of private companies. Canadian police and spies have a history of snooping on peaceful protesters and marginalized groups. Whether it was the peace movement, LGBT people, the Quebec sovereignty movement, anti-Olympics organizers, we know that these agencies have infiltrated them all. The oil and pipeline companies will almost certainly continue to spy on activists, mostly because it works. Warren and Terry from the top of the episode? Well, Kinder Morgan was able to use the evidence they gathered to convince a court to put even more restrictions on protesters. And of course, Jason Kenney's crusade against environmentalists will only make matters worse. These are all institutions that try to keep their work hidden. And there's a lot we still don't know. It will be many years before we understand how far all of this has gone. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode relied on reporting done by Mike D'Souza, Bruce Livesey, Adam Fetterman, Alistair Sharp, Dylan Sunshine Wasteman, and many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Canadaland Commons, that's C-M-N-S. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Kevin Sexton and Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash canadaland.